This week at Hope Point. We all willingly prostituted ourselves out on God when we willingly participated in sin before Christ. The whole point of the parable is, if you want to love God much, realize there's no such thing as 50. Everyone in this room, including me, and everybody in the world has sinned against God much. So the way to love God much is to know that, to know it and let it just wash you away and say, I can't believe He's forgiven me for that. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. Good morning, I hope you're doing well. Um, As I said, my name's John Chambers. Some of you know me as Fudd, uh, the one with all the kids. Uh, I have eight children, one in heaven. Uh, and uh, I am honored to be able to be here and preach today. Um, I appreciate the love and care that you as a church gave my family back in October when Evangeline passed away. Uh, and those that, that um, reached out to us and gave us so much care, I appreciate it. After the funeral service, Richard asked me to preach a variation of that sermon from the funeral service, just regarding the importance of life. And uh, I thought about it and prayed about it for a while. And the day she died was a Sunday, October 23rd. I was actually scheduled to preach that Sunday at a different church. Um, And after Richard asked me, I went back to him and I said, Richard, um, I think that I'm supposed to preach that sermon that I was supposed to preach that day. It's written, I wanna, I wanna preach it. And so he said, I love that. And so uh, thank you for the honor to be able to preach the particular sermon that I had ready on October 23rd that I didn't. Um, as well as, uh, I was in ministry for 23 years up until just about a year ago. I'm on a little bit of sabbatical. So I understand the week in, week out ministry of the word and just the, the work that it takes. And so it's, it's a great blessing that you give to Richard Uh, and the elders give to Richard to be able to have a couple weeks in a row right here at the beginning of the year as he takes some time to refresh his soul uh, and focus on how the Lord will use him to minister the word to the congregation for the next year. And so you are a blessing to him. Uh, And I thank you for this opportunity to be able to uh, bring the word this morning. So I'm gonna pray one more time because I'm here and I'm not there and mentally I just need to do it again. So uh, let's pray and then we will jump in. As I said, we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter seven, verse 36 and following. Lord, thank you so much again, as I said, for your word. Come now in spirit, um, come now in power, cause all of our hearts to see and understand the text, but not as that as a goal in and of itself. We don't wanna just understand words on a page. We wanna see Christ in the text and have our hearts rejoice uh, in what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the great, or actually the greatest commandment in the Bible has been given to us. And so as we look at this particular sermon, it's four characteristics of someone who truly loves Jesus. Uh, It's a bold title, uh, and I think that in this text we're going to see that's what the text is about. It's about how much do we love God? Now, we know in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is this. I mean, there's a bunch of commandments. He summarizes the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments, in the first four, and says it this way. And so the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are summarized by Jesus, and it tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. That's the summary of the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And so if this is the greatest commandment in the Bible, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if that is what it is, it should cause us to then, as we know that that's the commandment, to pause, to ponder what does the greatest commandment mean? What does it mean with me? The most obvious question, do I love God? How much do I love God? In what ways is it obvious that I love God? I've been wrestling, as I said, through this text just for a while, but even again through this last week. Um, And as we ponder that question, this text is going to help us understand what it means to truly, I'll go back to the title, what it means, I think, to truly love Christ. Uh, As we go through the narrative, it's gonna highlight for us four different ways we can understand what it looks like to think about do we truly love Christ. Now, Luke, 
uh, is, is known for highlighting the outcast. So we're in Luke chapter seven. One of the things he likes to do is he weaves the narrative of the story of Jesus different than some of the others is to highlight the outcasts of society. And so this is one of those texts where he does that. And Luke, starting in chapter seven and verse 36, he's going to introduce us to this woman of the city that had, uh, in, had brought herself into uninvited to a man named Simon's house. And so uh, Simon was a Pharisee and the Pharisees were known for trying to trap Jesus in theological questions. Uh, now this is, you know, pointless because not only did Jesus invent theology and intelligence, uh, he invented everything, including the word. And so he, included, he invented them, like he created them. So there's nothing that they can do to ever do this. But of course, they didn't think he was God. So in verse 36, it says this, one of the Pharisees, and we know in verse 40 that his name's Simon. And one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to come eat with him. Uh, and he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city. Now we know what that means because in the very next verse, it tells us uh, who was a sinner. This means everyone in the city knew who she was and what kind of woman she was. Most likely a prostitute, uh, but everybody knew who she was and what was going on. And so uh, it says, a woman of the city who was a sinner learned that he was, Jesus was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house. Now, as I said, Luke likes to highlight the outcast. More than likely what's going on, if you follow the flow of the narrative, it seems to be uh, obvious that this woman has come to know Christ at some other previous time. She's a believer in Jesus, she trusts Jesus, she's been forgiven by Jesus, and she hears, Jesus is in town, I love Jesus, all I wanna do is go where he is. Now, obviously that's a good application for us, which we'll get to, I wanna be around Christ. And so she knows that Christ is in town, uninvited, doesn't care that she's not invited, because Jesus, the God of the world, who will die for her sins and has died for our sins, is in town, all I wanna do is be around him. All I want to do is be there where he is. And so she busts up in the house uninvited. Um, and it says, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster fl flask of ointment. Now, I know that's what we all want. If someone would just bring me an alabaster flask of ointment, then my heart would be content. And you think that's, that's not the greatest present. But it, it's awesome because uh, you'll see how it falls into what's going on in the narrative. There's a massive deep thing that's going on. Uh, and it was likely very, very costly. And standing behind him at his feet, I'll, I'll explain that in a second, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, he doesn't say it out loud, just in his own head, he thinks to himself, he thinks to himself this, if this man, Jesus, now the Pharisees don't think that Jesus is God. They think that maybe he's a, a teacher of some sort, maybe from God, but maybe not. Certainly could be a prophet, but in this case, Simon has got his doubts. Like there's no way that this man's actually from God because he's letting this nasty prostitute touch him. And that's one of our rules. Sinners don't touch us or we'll catch the sinnies. Um, and so <laughs> if this woman were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman. What sort of woman? She's, she's, she's one of those sinners. This who, who is in touching him, for she's a sinner. And so this is what we have. Jesus coming up to this table. Uh, it's not really a table. What they would do in the first century uh, is they would sit in a circle. And so they, they would recline like this on their left hand and their feet would be behind them and they would be a circle and they would just eat like this. That's why it says he's, she's coming up behind him. So she's on the outer kind of part of the circle, just at his feet. And they're all kind of concentrating, but there's a lot going on at Jesus's feet, if you know what I'm saying. So they're eating right there. And so she busts up and as they're eating and having this dinner, I mean, she just doesn't care. She's at the feet of Christ cleaning his feet. And so she's weeping, uh, and this woman knows who God knows who Christ is. He is God. He is God. And this woman, who was a sinner, who's been forgiven, knew that you know I, I'm a sinner, but I'm not supposed to be over there. But all I want to do is be around him. And Jesus is willing to break what would be the Pharisaic rules of the time. The Pharisees, I said, that what they did is you know here's the Old Testament law. 
These are the commands that God gave Israel. The Pharisees, by the time you get to the first century, said, we wanna follow those. We wanna follow those so much. We're gonna create a new set of laws that if we follow these, then we'll definitely follow these. So everybody's gotta follow these laws. They were just theirs. They were God's. And so following these made them legalists. And Jesus is willing at this particular point to say, the Pharisaical rules of the time, I'm willing to break all these things because I'm going to put on display to everyone in this room and for all of us because we have this text, that I'm breaking the Pharisaical rules of the day to put on display that I love sinners. This idea that she can't touch my feet is nonsense. And so... Simon's thinking to himself, if Jesus knew, if he just knew what kind of sort of woman this is, so he can't be from God, then he wouldn't do it. But the truth is, he did know. And that's exactly why he's allowing it to happen. It's exactly what he's doing. That's why he's putting on display his love for the sinner. So one of the characteristics that I want us to see is this. Four characteristics of someone who truly loves Christ is this. And this is what Jesus is doing for us in the text. And so we know that we are to be Christ-like, so we should do this. Number one, a believer who truly loves Jesus will also love the sinners. They will also love sinners. Now, when we read the text, we see that Jesus is there talking with Simon and this lady comes in. But what I want us to understand is that Jesus is there not just for the woman's sake, but even for Simon's sake. Not just the one who's clearly a sinner, but the one who pretends that they're not. Man, if that's not perfect for our society, right? We as followers of Christ, especially in the South, sometimes need to hear that Christ died not just for the sinners, but for us who try to pretend that everything's okay. Jesus loved both the woman and the Pharisee, and both were sinners. The difference is, of course, is that the Pharisee, Simon, just didn't think that he was. These were both wretched, outcast sinners, and he wants us to love them. And so when we think about that, okay, he wants me to love sinners. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? Whenever I was in college, this is circa, let me give away my age, 1994. I'm old. I'm old. That's why I have these. All right, I'm old. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, when I was in college, circa 1994, I was driving around and it was at USC. Gamecocks? Never. All right. Um, yes. Um, we, we won this year. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I know it's once every 10 years and I'm going to get dogged the next nine, whatever. But Man, it feels 44, I'm 40, well, how old am I? I'm 48, 44 years of just, it's stinking. All right, so anyway, focus, FUD. I'm in, I'm in college, it's 1994, this is one week. I'm driving, I get pulled over for running a stop sign, four points. Um, I'm driving a couple of days later, I get pulled over for running a stop light, four points. I'm driving another couple of days later, I get pulled over for speeding, two points. The judge was nice. So I'm at 10 points. My parents still love me that week, by the way. They were just like, you're the best son ever. Um, and so insurance is great. We love paying insurance. So I realized, okay, I've got 10 points on my license, two more, and you're out of there. You're like, you, you lose your license. And so I found out you can go to this class at Midlands Tech on Tuesday and Thursday nights, and your points will be cut in half. And I was like, well, that sounds great. I need to do that. And my parents were like, yeah, you have to do that. And so uh, this is 94. I go to Tuesday, Thursday, driving school, Midlands Technical College in downtown. And so I'm sitting in this room and around me, now this is 94. I know today we're much more expressive with the way we look, but in 94, we weren't so expressive. But there's blue hair and nose rings and tattoos and shaved heads. And that wasn't quite as common in 94. And I'm looking around, I'm like, man, I'm in a class with a bunch of weirdos. This is just really weird. And then all of a sudden I'm kind of sitting there and it just hits me all of a sudden. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a weirdo too. I'm, I'm in the room with weirdos because I'm one too. Look at me. Now, weird illustration, right? But that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus wants us to love sinners. When are we gonna do it? When we finally just wake up and say, oh man, I'm one too. First Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When we realize that we're no different than everybody and that we are to love sinners because we are one ourselves and we can't get over being saved. If we just can't get over it, then we will as Christ does, love sinners. Now, 
Where are we? Love sinners. That's nebulous. Okay, I love sinners. Is that all? Sure, but to what end? What, to what end are we to love sinners? I think that's an important question. As in, I mean, we love sinners, but what's the point of loving sinners? Just to be known as loving people? Well, that's good. Christians are to be known as the most loving people because no one has ever been more loved than Christians because God has saved us in Christ. And so we should love people more than anyone. But what's the end? What's the point of being people who love sinners? It's not just to be known as people who are loving. Jesus goes over to hang out with Simon and the woman of the city. He knows that they're gonna be there. He's hanging out with both of them. Both of these sinners need Christ. One cleans themselves up continually like the Pharisee, pretends everything's fine. And the other one is a woman of the city and knows that there's nothing you know, great about my life. What's the end of hanging out with sinners? T- two chapters ago uh, in Luke chapter five, uh, Jesus goes and calls Levi to be a follower. Tw- one of the 12 disciples, this is Matthew. And when he goes over to Matthew's house, it says, Levi made him a great... F- I'll go to 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector, Levi, sitting at a tax booth, and he looked at him and he said, follow me. Next verse, he left everything. Man, that's awesome. He left everything and he rose and he followed him. Next verse, he left everything. We just think that means he left everything. Next verse, Levi made a feast in his house. I thought he left everything. He kept his house. Leaving everything, I think, doesn't just mean so much as we make it physical. It's, it's, our, it's our hearts. We are willing to say, here's everything, Christ. He kept his house. And what does he do with this house the next day? He invites all the tax collectors. He wants the sinners to also meet Jesus like he has. And so he's there and the Pharisees are, in, are there and like grumbling, like, why are you hanging out with the sinners, Jesus? And why are you eating with tax collectors? And Jesus tells them, this is what he says. Those who are well have no need for a physician. Well, they do, they just don't think they do. But those who are sick are the ones that do. I have come, I've not come to call the righteous or those who think they're righteous because they're not, but sinners to repentance. That's the end. Whenever I say we are to hang around sinners, we're to be like Christ and be with sinners, the end is to call them to repentance. The most loving thing that we can do is to tell people that they need Christ, that their sin has made them sick. Now, we can't beat them up and make them feel horrible. The gospel is the gospel. It will help them see that they need Christ. Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the truth. First, we're to speak, not keep silent. We're to speak the truth, not craziness, but the Bible, in love. So when we tell them that they need Christ, Christians should be the most loving people when we proclaim the gospel. The end or the telos or the final thing of loving sinners is telling them that they need Christ because someone did it for us. Praise the Lord. Being a believer that loves sinners, that we do everything we can to tell sinners that they need to repent of their sin and trust Christ. John Piper Speaking on the glory of sharing the gospel with people says it this way. The greatest cause in the world for for Christians is joyfully rescuing people from hell. Now God does it, but he uses us. Meeting their earthly needs and making them glad in God and doing with a kind of serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure he actually is. Spurgeon says it also, and he says it this way. The obligatory Spurgeon quote in the sermon. He's just so good. Speaking on telling people about Christ, if sinners be damned, at at least let them leap over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Meaning, Matthew chapter seven, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and hell, and many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. We as believers, as we are walking through life, 
we are to walk out in the proverbial wide road. And as they're walking down the path towards hell, to step out there and stick our arms out wide and say, no, trust Christ, turn around, repent. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to Christ. You can be forgiven of all your sin. And we, as he says, if they're gonna be filled, let, let, let us warn every single one of them and pray for every single one of them. We as believers must have a heart for sinners because we love Christ. The path is wide that leads to destruction. And on that road, we must extend our arms and tell everyone we can about Jesus. Now, if we keep going, we're gonna see the next amazing characteristic of someone who truly loves God and uh, understands what it means to do this. Now, if you look at verse 39, we're gonna pick up at verse 39 and it says this. We've already read this verse, but it connects with what we're going to go through, through 43. Now, when a Pharisee uh, had invited him, he saw this and he said to himself, if a man were prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is, and that she's touching him for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Now, I love this because as a, Simon said this to himself, and Jesus reads his mind and says, hey, Simon, I'm going to answer you. Um, <laughs> I, you didn't say anything out loud, Simon, but I know what you said. And I wanna, I wanna go ahead and answer the question in your mind. Well, just as a side note, this helps us understand that Jesus in the incarnation, when he became man, retained some of the attributes of deity. He still was walking around. Philippians 2 said that he didn't count all the quality of God with something to be grasped, but he let go some of them, but he walked around as the God-man. He was God and he was man. And he reads Simon's mind and he says, Simon, I, I, I want to answer your question by way of parable, by way of parable. And this is what he says. Simon, I have, a cert I have something to say to you. I've read your mind and I'm, I'm not a fan of what I, what I see. And he said, uh, Simon says, say it, teacher. This is just being you know, common in the day. He would call him teacher. A certain money lender has two debtors. Two people owe him this, this money lender money. One owes 500 denarii. Denarii just means day's wage. We just use dollars for fun. One owes $500. The other owes 50. Neither one of them can pay. Crucial to understanding this text. Neither one of them could pay. When neither one of them could pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Which one's going to love the money lender more? Simon says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. If you, owe me, if, one, if you owe me 500 and you owe me 50 and I say neither one of you, the one who's 50 is like, hey, thanks. The one who's 500 is like, wow, thanks. I uh, appreciate that. Simon understands the parable in, in one kind of common level, but not in the deeper level. Simon says, or he says, the one who canceled the, 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 deeper, the, the deeper debt, uh, larger debt, and he says, you have judged rightly. You have judged rightly. So as we see this, Jesus reads his thoughts and the purpose of, I think, of this parable is twofold. The obvious one, which we're going to get to, is how to explain how much we should love God. There's people who have lots of sin, people who have a little bit of sin. If God cancels both of them, which one's going to love God more? The one who has a whole bunch of nasty sin in their life or the one who just has a little bit, the one who has a whole bunch? I mean, that's the obvious thing that we can get from it. But there's something else I want to point out that I think that's a little more subtle in, in, the, in the text that I think that's going on here. Another purpose is that in the eyes of Simon, he thinks this lady is just gross and nasty and a sinner. And I think Jesus wants to help Simon see and, and, and defend this woman in a bit and say, you shouldn't look at her like that. She's left that sinful life behind. That life for her is over. And then in the same way, we should have the same thing going on in our life. The second characteristic of someone who truly loves Jesus is we will understand God's hatred of sin and will seek to kill sin in our life. God hates sin. He hates the ongoing sin in the life of the believer and he wants us to kill it. Now I want to be clear here. Whenever we come to know Christ and we repent of our sin, it's justification and we are forgiven. This is God's declaration. You're innocent forever. You cannot change that. You have been forgiven. And so now, because of that, you live what's called sanctification. From that moment you're saved or justified, the rest of your life you live uh, wanting to become more Christ-like. Not because it saves you, but because you are saved. 
And now I live a life of holiness. I live a life of becoming more Christ-like. I live a life of seeing sin get killed in my life. And I think that's what Jesus is wanting to help Simon see. She's left that life behind. And we as believers, we do the same thing. When we come to know Christ, when we truly love Christ, we hate our sin, we leave it behind, we put it to death. John Owen wrote a book called Mortification of Sins, just killing sin. He says, to believers, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Vigilant and killing sin, the moment you're not vigilant, it comes up like a roaring lion, ready to destroy you again. The way we as Christians kill sin in our lives is starve it to death. Sin in our life means don't participate. Paul writes it this way in Colossians chapter three, verse five. And when I say Paul, I mean, since 2 Peter 1.21 says, all men who wrote were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we mean God. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sinful. And he gives us illustrations, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. This is a command. This is written in the command form. We are, as believers who really love God, supposed to want to kill sin in our life. Paul writes it a different way, but same principle in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, a little bit extra, by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds or the deeds of the body, you will live. Still a command. We are in our own lives as Christians, to hate sin because we love God, we want to kill sin in our life by the Spirit. And so when we hear that we need, when we see these verses in the scriptures that command us to kill sin, we are as believers obligated to obey that. When we know that there's any kind of sin in our life, we are to kill it by the Spirit so that he gets the glory, not us. But it, it's not earning a right relationship with God by doing it. We're doing it because we already have that in Christ. All of the future sins that I will commit have already been paid for on Calvary. So I'm willing and I want to kill all those sins because I know that. John warns us for those uh, who know this. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments, there are a bunch of them, but I'm just keying on, on killing sin, is a liar and the truth is not in him. John's direct, there's no doubt about it. We should want to kill our sin. If we don't, we should ask why. Why don't I wanna kill my sin? Why am I so comfortable with this? But whoever keeps his word in him, the truly true love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, he is a Christian. And I, this, this is so key right here. Ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. How did Jesus walk? Well, he was perfect. Perfect. And we ought to walk. You say, Fudd, I can't do that. I won't ever be perfect. <laughs> Me either, right? Ought. We are to pursue Christ-likeness with every fiber of our being, knowing that we want and knowing that because we can't, we're forgiven of that. But it never changes the fact that we're supposed to. We are supposed to pursue Christ-likeness with everything in us. And what Luke's trying to see, help us see by the power of the Spirit is this lady had left her sinful life behind. Will we? Will we kill sin? When we come believers, like God, we're supposed to hate sin. Whenever I was a youth minister, some 20-something years ago, I took my kids to a conference in Columbia and the guest speaker at the time was a guy named David Nasser. I can't talk. And that's coffee, so it's not the best thing, but we're gonna go with it. Um, so while I was there, um, he gave out a devotional to everybody that was there, uh, a book called A Call to Die. It's a 30-day devotional on, I don't even know if it exists anymore, um, but A Call to Die, you fast from something, and while you fast from this, you do this 30-day devotional. And as I went through it, day, I think it was 14, I mean, I have not forgotten day 14 since then. The challenge in it is just so powerful from it that regarding killing sin in our life, I still remember it, and it really changed my mind about how I want to live. He says this, you and I are at the banquet table of God's presence of truth, the Bible, and so often when we come to the Bible, we're already so full of junk from the world that we're not even hungry to actually feast on the word. 
and then therefore we're really starving to death. We've settled for garbage from the world instead of feasting on the nourishment that God provides. And then he goes into an illustration about this man named Chris who went to Calcutta one summer to work at this place called the House for the Dying that Mother Teresa set up. Uh, She set it up so that everybody... It's, it's one of the poorest cities in the world, Calcutta. And there were people who lived on the streets that were homeless. And Chris's job when he got there as an intern is to walk out in the streets and find the people who were literally about to die. Like they're gonna die in the next 24 hours. Uh, you got seven days, you're not ready. Right now, the, the point is not to cure, to bring them back to the house of dying. So in their last 24 hours of life, they didn't die cold on the streets by themselves, but they died with dignity in the house of the dying. And so the homeless population is massive. There's disease everywhere, tuberculosis, and he would walk down the streets and invite them and say, I'll come with me and I'll give you a place to lie down so you can, you can die. And upon arrival, as they got there, their heads were shaved. They were given a shower, given a hot bowl of food to eat. They would change their ragged, nasty, soiled clothing with clean ones. And they would throw all these things in the trash. And then they would sit around and they would cough up their lungs together in jars and just pass around the jar uh, and then throw it in the trash. And then if they had lepers and their skins were rotting off, they would fall on the ground and they'd sweep up the skin and the nasty body parts and throw it in the garbage. And then they, if they had big sores, they would get a needle and drain. I'm sorry, this is gross, but there is a point, I promise. And they would drain the, the nasty until the needle, they'd just go from person to person until the needle was dull and wouldn't work anymore and throw it in the trash because they're going to die so you don't have to worry about transferring death to each other. And at the house of the dying, this was his job to wash their skin, uh, to help them uh, have these last hours of dignity and everything, everything was thrown into the trash. And Chris said, one thing I begged not to do was to take out the garbage. The stench of the garbage was just so unbearable. Can you imagine the disease and the ragged clothing and the half eaten food and the hair and the syringes and the coughed up lungs? I begged them to not make me do it. It haunted me forever the very first time I ever took out the garbage. As I walked out of the back door towards the dumpsters, children that were in the alleys came towards me, ran towards me and ripped the bags out of my hands and ripped the bags open. I yelled, don't eat it. It's garbage. It's full of disease and death. But they were so hungry, they dug through the garbage just to find any uneaten food mixed in with all the disease in the bag. They had no other choice. I wept as I saw them scrambled through the jars of disease and ripped clothing and flesh and syringes just to find scraps of last night's dinner. It's a disturbing image, but in all honesty, how far are we from this spiritually? Do you see yourself feasting sometimes on the dumpster of the world? We're like kids scrambling through garbage, lunging and fighting for rotting things from this world. We're so full sometimes of the junk of the world that we aren't even hungry for the food that really satisfies the word. And so if that's the case, we're so full of sin that we're not willing to kill it. We willingly and knowingly participate in so much sin. How much do we love God? We are, as believers, because we love God, willing to leave that sinful life behind and kill every sin in our lives. The Bible says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's really simple and hard. Know, because we're all different. Know every sin that the devil will tempt you with or that your flesh will give into or that you have a propensity to, to give over to. Know, know that sin. Go to the word and find every single verse that has to do with that and memorize it. Memorize short verses so when the devil tempts you, you can take out, as in Ephesians 6, Galatians 6, the word and stab him with it and say, no, sir, and memorize the long ones. You have the big sword where you can just lop off his head and say, no, sir. That's what our job is. When we say, put to death the deeds of the, sp- deeds of the flesh by the spirit, it's by memorizing the word. If you go to the, the text in Galatians 6, when you have the, the, the equipment that, we're, that we wear, the, the helmet, the sword, the belt, the only offensive weapon is the word. And so we kill sin by memorizing scripture and starving it to death. 
those who truly love God will seek to kill every single sin in their life. Fud, will I do it perfectly? No. And when you don't, you'll be even more amazed at just how big the gospel is. That's the gospel. You're forgiven. That's not a credit card to just do whatever you want. That's encouragement and motivation to kill more sin. Now, back to the text when we go to the next one. And I wanna, I wanna we're starting to get to, I think, what the, is the pinnacle of the text, but I wanna make sure you see again. I've, I've read it in 37. I wanna let you see it. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner had learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of Pharisees' house. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. In the first century, for someone like Simon, who was particularly wealthy, they would have like a hierarchy of servants that lived in their house from the greatest servant to the least servant. The greatest servant served the food and had some of the higher responsibilities. The lowest servant of the house was the foot washer because it's the worst job. They lived in dusty areas. People wore sandals. Every time they came to your house, the foot washer's job was to take out the basin and to clean their, the, the guests' feet so that they were clean so they came into the house. Um, everybody in the first century knew the, the lowest servant of the house is the foot washer. And so as we get into this text, let's look at it, starting in verse 44. He t- Jesus tells him the parable, and Simon's like, the one, that can't, the one that canceled the larger debt? Yes, Simon. Now, do you understand what I'm saying to you? And he says in verse 44, turning towards the woman, he says to Simon. So he's laying there. Simon's thinking his thoughts. He tells him the parable, and he points towards the woman, and he says to him, Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Now, it's customary when you come to someone's house to kiss their their face, pour oil on their head, and wash their feet. When I come to your house, that's what I expect, by the way. Handshake will not suffice anymore. No, I'm just kidding. We do the handshake and maybe a bro hug or whatever. But here, they, they kiss their face, they pour oil on their head, and they wash their feet. And Jesus is like, you did none of those things for me. But she did. And this isn't even her house. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You're like, How, how's that possible to, for it to be that wet? There's, there's two it's two verbs for crying in the Greek. One's like, you know, boo-hoo, kind of little tears. Your two-year-old stubbed his toe. And the other one's clio. It's just like water works. More water than you can ever see. The floodgates are turned on. It's that word. That's how much water she's producing. Not because she's sad, but because she's so joyful about the fact that Christ has forgiven her of her sin. And it says this. She's not ceased to... Um, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with the ointment, this costly ointment that she brought. And so what she does then uh, is puts on display for us this truth, which is the characteristic of someone who loves Jesus is someone who will gladly take the role of servant. We as Christians are to take the role of servant with the people around us. People need things, we serve them. We as Christians that, who really love Christ are willing for it to be costly. This ointment she brought was costly. Does being a servant have to be costly? No. Might it? Absolutely. It might, absolutely. She did the three things that the foot washer was supposed to do but didn't. So she came in there and did those things for her. For this woman and all of us, Um, truly loving Jesus means being the servant in the room and willing to serve and sacrifice for anyone. I mean, I'm just thinking of my wife right now and and all moms, the sacrifice that they make to love and serve children day in, day out with almost no thanks, almost no thanks. But kids, thank your parents. That's the role that we're to take. Whenever I was at Charleston Southern, after I graduated, I got a job there and I was an enrollment counselor for like three years. This just means try to make people come to the school. Um, and so I was there for three years before I was going to go to seminary uh, and so travel around, et cetera. And they gave me these business cards. Uh, right before I left, they bought me 500 business, a thousand, a lot of business cards. And I'm literally leaving in a month. And so I, I only handed out maybe four and I had all these business cards and I'm like, what am I going to do with all these business cards? And so um, I like to 
be funny sometimes. And so what I decided the best thing to do is um, without anybody knowing, I'm gonna hide as many business cards, I did all 500, all over this entire building. And so slowly over the next couple years, they're gonna keep finding these business cards in students' folders, in the ceiling, in the plants, in the desk, in other people's, everywhere, so that they just never forget me. I just don't want them to ever forget me. Um, And so I found out, like 10 years later, someone told me that they were still finding my business cards all over the building, and that whenever I left, the enrollment counselors love it, and they started the tradition, that they hide their business cards when they leave, um, everywhere they go. So 10 years later, they were still seeing things about me all over the building. All right, here's what I'm trying to say, crazy illustration, but the point is this. We need to serve in such a way, months and years later, people still remember the way we served and they wanna model Christ that way. They wanna do the same thing because Jesus did it. This is before the cross, the last lesson he taught his 12 disciples. If you're gonna teach a lesson with your 12 disciples before you die on the cross. And this is it. We should, we should key in on what's, what's the, it's probably the most important lesson he's gonna give his disciples before he dies. What is it? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things to his hands, that he'd come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, he took a towel and put it around his waist. Then he poured it into a water basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you're in church, you probably are so familiar with the fact that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, you can blow past that. I mean, just pause it with me. The God of the universe who created feet and knows that they're nasty got down on the floor 2,000 years ago in dusty Palestine and took a water jar and cleaned all 12 of them as his last lesson. This is the way we're to serve. He became the servant leader and all servants, because we follow him, should follow our master. And so we should gladly take the role of servant. Every opportunity we have to serve someone, we should take it. Christians that love Christ gladly take the role of servant. And here we are at the pinnacle. We're at the pinnacle in verse 47, but I want to remind you in verse 41, the parable. I just want to remind you the parable when we go to 47. So 41, certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 days wages. The other owed 50. Neither of them could pay it back. He canceled both debts. Which one's going to love him more? Simon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you've judged rightly. Now Jesus is going to look at Simon and help him understand that parable in 47. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He's setting up a little math equation for us all. If, when, you read, when I read that parable to you, just be honest with yourself. When I read the parable to you, and you know it's about sin, 500 really bad, terrible, wicked sinners, 50 not so bad compared to those guys. Which one did you just, in your mind, naturally place yourself in? Which category? Oh, I'm the, I'm the 50. Which one did you put your head into? This little math equation he's setting up is, for people who know that they've been forgiven for a whole lot of stuff, the end result is they love God a lot with everything. For people who don't think of themselves as really bad sinners when they've been forgiven, the result is they just love God a little bit. Greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I ask the question, do you love God? Which one did you put yourself in? And that'll help me and you answer that question. Because the point is this. There's no such thing as 50 and 500. There's no 50. We're all 500. That's the point. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that we all followed the prince of the power of the air before we became Christians. That just means we were all devil worshipers before we became Christians. Like this woman, we all willingly prostituted ourselves out on God when we willingly participated in sin before Christ. 
The whole point of the parable is, if you want to love God much, realize there's no such thing as 50. Everyone in this room, including me, and everybody in the world has sinned against God much. So the way to love God much is to know that. To know it and let it just wash you away and say, I can't believe he's forgiven me for that. That's why sin is so terrible. If you grew up, grown up in the South, like I have, you probably heard this testimony. And I, I've heard it so much now in ministry that I've always just like, what's going on there? I want to understand it more. This isn't every teenager and whoever's out of their teens now. And if this is you, I'm not, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying this is what happens. They get saved at a young age. They go into a church. That's good. They, they walk with Christ in their middle school and high school years. They go off to college. We wish they had a stronger foundation, but they don't. They hear some things about Christianity, this, that. They have a period of curiosity about the sin that their college mates are, are participating in. And they have a period of kind of walking away from 18 to 20, whatever. They get married and they're like, oh man, I don't want my kids to be like me. So they, they, go, back to the, they go back to the to the church and now they start the pattern, rinse, repeat. What's going on in that 18 to 25-ish area? I've been thinking about it. Why is that happening? Because I think in the South that those kids could be taught proper theology. I'm not saying this is hope point. I'm saying this is the world and realize you fall away because you don't love God much because you think that you're not a bad sinner. But the reality is that we're all. And when we can't get over that we've been saved, whenever they go into those times of massive temptation and they love God much, I think we'll see less and less and less of our kids following down that path of destruction from 18 to 25. I think that's what's going, I think that's what's going on. I'm guessing. But here's my fourth point. It leads me into it. Four characteristics of somebody who loves Jesus. This is reworded. They're trying to bring into the pinnacle. A believer who loves, a believer who understands their sin that has been forgiven of them, it's a bunch, will love God much. They will love God much. You might say, I do that. I love God a lot. Well, what does that look like? This woman clearly loves Jesus. She heard he was in town. She wanted to be with him. So here's just three little tangible ways that you can know, okay, I love God. And this is what it looks like. She heard you got, got, Jesus was in town. She wanted to be with him physically. We, wanted, we, we should want to be with Jesus physically. We, he's not here. He's in heaven, but he's left us his word. So we should want to be in the Bible every day. Even if we don't want, we should still be in it, but we should want to. And it helps us understand if we're obeying the first commandment. I, I love the Lord of God, my heart, soul, and strength. I want to be in his word. Or this woman took the role of servant. A tangible way to know that we love the Lord of God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we want to serve people. This was a hard one for me. I'm not wired that way. But we should want to serve people and, and do it. I really want to, but I'm just going to take a pass. We should and do it. Um, another one. If we really love God, a tangible way is when the Lord, through his grace and his Holy Spirit, makes evident to you, here's your sin, we should want to kill it. It's not our pet sin and we just hold it and let it, let it go and hide it and keep it in secret. We kill it. With everything inside of us, we want it dead. If we don't, why? John Piper in this book called God is the Gospel, as in the good news is as Christians, you get God. You, you don't just get forgiven of sin. You don't just get to go to heaven. You don't just get to finally have no cancer. You get God. He asked this in the book. He says, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven, this is, this is pure bliss. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you like, whatever sport you love, and everything you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever saw, all the physical pleasures that you've ever saw. I mean, this is, this, if you could have this heaven, all, no human conflict, no natural disasters, no cancer, and you could be, could you be satisfied with that heaven, with all that stuff, if Jesus wasn't there? We should all say with a resounding answer, no. 
because that is not heaven. Jesus is heaven. We get to have Christ. This woman got to be with Christ. Think of it this way. We just got through Christmas. You have your Christmas tree. And I think sometimes in North American Christianity, Jesus is an ornament we put on our tree of our life. And we come up to the ornament, we look at it, we remember, we think it's awesome, and then sometimes we can put it away. For Christians, Jesus is really one of two things. For Christians, as I see it playing out in the life of Christians, Jesus is either, one, a nice addition to my already happy life. If I didn't have him, I'd still be happy. I have money, I have children, I have a house, I have whatever, vacations. So he's a nice addition to my already happy life. I hang him in my ornament on my tree. Or he's everything I live my life for. It's it. Bonhoeffer says, the cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He's everything we live our life for. And a believer who understands that we've been forgiven much will love God much, and he's everything we live our life for. Now, Jesus is going to, if you're feeling discouraged, don't, because Jesus is going to leave her with this great gospel reminder that I think we all need to hear, which is this, 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Some of you just need to hear that. Your sins are forgiven. Or or even maybe you need to hear this. Stop trying to repay God for being forgiven. You never will. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Luke 7, 48, your sins are forgiven. So to conclude, as we've heard all these characteristics that, of people that love God, I just want to lead us with this. When we truly love Jesus and realize just how much we've been forgiven, we realize that we can never pay him, we can never pay God for being forgiven of our sin. And now we live in the gospel, not religion. We live in the life of this woman, not Simon. Our life is totally different. For Simon, or the religious, religion tells us work so you can finally have a relationship with God. The gospel tells us Jesus did all the work on the cross and you already have a relationship with God now because you've repented of your sin. The religion tells us your sin is so bad that you must try harder every day so God's gonna be happy with you. The gospel tells us your sin is so bad that God sent his son to pay the price for your sin. And now he's always happy with you because Jesus paid the the price on the cross for you. The payment has been made. So if you are not a Christian, repent of your sin and come to know Christ. If you are a believer and you've been walking down a life of mediocrity, wondering if you really love Christ, Reflect on the weight of your sin and mine and say, from this day forward, I'm going to walk saying, I love God much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.